This is an ABC podcast. Intelligence is a subjective thing. Having a mind stuffed with facts doesn't necessarily make you fit for anything much, to be honest. I knew an academic once who could recall and dissect the minutiae of Middle Eastern politics, but constantly struggled to remember where he'd put his car keys, let alone his car. (coughs) Hello, Anthony Fennell here, and this is Future Tense. Then there's the type of smarts you need to do well or even hold your own in a fast-changing employment environment. One term that's increasingly coming to the fore is emotional intelligence. But what is it? Why is it necessary and how do you acquire it? Well, first up, let's talk with Daniel Goleman. He didn't invent the term, but he did put it on the map with his 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence. And ever since, he's been working to refine the idea and its potential application. Daniel Goleman. Emotional intelligence has four main parts. One is self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, why you feel it, how it makes you think and want to act how it shapes your perceptions. The second is using that information to manage yourself, your emotions in a a positive way, to stay motivated, to stay focused, to be adaptable and agile instead of rigid and locked in, and to be optimistic, to see the bright side, to see that you and other people can get better. Then the third part is empathy, understanding how someone else feels without them telling you in words, because people don't tell us in words, they tell us in tone of voice and facial expression and so on, and then putting that all together to have effective relationships. Those are the four parts of emotional intelligence. Is it something that most of us actually understand in one way or another, even if we don't necessarily give it that term? It's not a new concept except by name. I think, you know, know thyself. That's been around for 2,000 years. However, putting it together in this way, tying it to neuroscience and also looking at how it matters for how well we do our work, how well kids learn in school. That's new. So why does it matter? When I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence about 27, 28 years ago, I I really just had a hunch. There were pilots and so on, but no one had the data. Now we know. It's clear, for example, that in schools, what's called social-emotional learning makes kids behave better. They like school more. There is less bullying, less violence, and their academic achievement scores go up. It's just a win-win-win. And in the workplace, it turns out that emotionally intelligent workers perform better. They're more engaged in what they do. Leaders who have emotional intelligence get better productivity out of people, and people like working for them. And, you know, they're not the boss you hate, they're the boss you love. And businesses or organizations that can embody emotional intelligence in their culture get better marks by every metric. So is this about achieving a balance, if you like, between you know your own needs, one's own needs, and those of others? I would say that's a part of it. You know, there's something called self-compassion. That's a novel idea in Western culture. I remember talking years ago to the Dalai Lama. He said, you know, English needs a new word. In my language, compassion means compassion for yourself as well as other people. But in English, it's just about other people. Now there is the word self-compassion. But anyway, you want to be sure that you take care of yourself emotionally and also that you take care of other people. I think that The purpose of emotional intelligence itself 
is to help you and other people be at their best. And that's very different from the, the competitive nature of a lot of our societies, and particularly Anglo-Saxon societies, where competition in the workplace but also at school is seen as a primary focus. Well, there are two outlying cultures in this respect. One is Australia and the other is uh, the US. They're the most individually competitive. In many Asian cultures, for example, the self is the family and the self is my company. The self is a group. But we see ourselves in Australia and in the States where I'm from as being distinct and needing to do better. And we're encouraged to do better by our cultures. I'm not sure that's for the best. I know that you've pointed out that emotional intelligence shouldn't be mistaken for simply being nice to people. There's a difference between being nice and being kind, and it's really important to understand. You might be nice just not to create waves and to, you know, go along to get along, but that doesn't mean that you're helping necessarily. It just means that you're not disturbing other people. Being kind, on the other hand, means saying the thing or doing the thing that needs to be surfaced, that needs to be said. It may be uncomfortable at first, but it's for the good of yourself, it's for the good of others, good of the group. Do you see evidence that emotional intelligence is actually, it, it may well be valued and spoken about by organisations and companies, but is it actually, are they actually training people in emotional intelligence? Interesting. I just saw data that shows that the top five topics that executives are coached for are emotional intelligence in one form or another. I think at the top of the house, many people have the luxury of being coached. It's, you know, it's not cost effective further down. The, most companies, most organizations will espouse some interest in this. Some do it well, some don't. We've been studying, actually, I'm now writing a book about how to build an emotionally intelligent organization. And it's interesting. We don't advocate hiring for it because it's very, people can game hiring. What we do encourage is that you train people for it, you develop people for it, you show that it matters. It's important, for example, that someone from the business side be a champion of emotional intelligence in an organization. Then human resources, you know, everybody yawns at human resources. Human resources can then offer the how you do it, but without the encouragement, without the sense that, you know, there's really a business case for this, it doesn't happen. How do you prevent it being used as a, a form of washing, if you like, you know, simply becoming PR? It's, it's what you're expected to, to say if you're a manager of an organisation. It's a thing that you, you should say you value, but perhaps you don't. Yeah, it's the same as with, say, greenwashing, where a, a company or a spokesperson for a company will say, yes, we do this. We're, we advocate emotional intelligence. We advocate sustainability. But if you look at their actual track record, you realise it's BS. It's not true. And on Future Tense, a feature interview with Dr Daniel Goleman from Goleman Consulting and author of the book Emotional Intelligence, among many others, of course. We speak of living in a digital age and we know that there is an antisocial aspect to digital media and to digital tools. It can bring us together, but it can also separate us and isolate us. Is emotional intelligence more important in a digital age, do you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's something called technically cyber disinhibition that happens. It's otherwise known as flaming, trolling, saying mean things to someone online that you'd never say in person, never say face to face. And it's because the brain, the natural inhibitors that operate during face to face interaction don't exist online. 
So that part of the brain is free just to speak up. And of course, you may regret it later. That's the sign you were hijacked. But uh, it means that the digital age needs emotional intelligence more than ever. So does that mean that we have to we have to make sure that we factor in personal contact, human contact, opportunities for that in our daily lives, as well as the, the digital side of things? I would put it that way. I would say that it, you need the balance of the face-to-face or one-on-one. By the way, the one-on-one may be digital too, but the idea is that it's personal. You're talking to the person about themselves, not just about the task at hand, which tends to happen in, in group calls and so on. So I think that it's important to balance the isolation, the specialization that can go on in, in digital media with having either person-to-person, in-person, or online engagement. Is that going to be difficult, though, in a world where the major communications and technology companies are increasingly moving towards automation, increasingly moving towards AI and algorithms? You know, there may be a backlash against that. I have a huge complaint, which is that companies are outsourcing work they used to do to me and to you. And they uh, wrap it up by saying, oh, you know, we've got this very cool online way of doing it, banking, for example. And I say, you know, I would rather talk to a person. It's much more efficient. And I think there may be a backlash where all of a sudden consumers are demanding people again. Young people and emotional intelligence. I've seen two quite contradictory views on young people. One that emotional intelligence is declining in young people, again, because of their use of digital media and that sort of separation. But another that they are quite emotional people. You know, they are prepared to take on campaigns and they they talk about causes in a way that previous generations haven't. Your views on that, where do you see young people fitting in in this emotional intelligence spectrum? Well, I saw some interesting data recently that show that if you ask people toward the end of their career, does emotional intelligence matter? You know, 90% say, of course it does. If you ask people who are just beginning the career, they say, oh no, it's, uh, it's tech skills that matter. I think there's a natural learning curve over the course of life where you see that your ability to manage yourself and to handle your relationships actually makes a difference. So I would take that data with a grain of salt because it's early days for many young people. They haven't had enough life experience to know. So emotional intelligence is something, yes, we can we can foster it. it we can be trained in how to, to use it to improve our lives and, and the lives of those around us. But it's something we grow into, are you saying? Well, the good news about emotional intelligence is that unlike your IQ, which is pretty fixed through life, emotional intelligence is learned and learnable. And if you haven't picked it up now, it's never too late if you're motivated. And you mentioned IQ there. I mean, IQ is often seen as a a measure of where we fit in society, where we fit in organisations. You believe emotional intelligence is more important than IQ or should they they be seen together? I think they both matter, but they matter differently, Anthony. It's really interesting that the data from organisations themselves suggests that you need a certain level of IQ to get a job in a certain role. To be an accountant, for example, to be a nurse, to be a physician, to be, you know, a professional, you need an IQ about uh, one standard deviation among the norm. It's around 114, 115 to get an MBA, for instance. However, think about this. 
once you get the position, you're now competing with people who are about as smart as you are. IQ drops out as a differentiator of effectiveness. I saw a study with engineers asking them to evaluate other engineers on effectiveness as an engineer. It turned out that effectiveness had zero correlation with the engineer's IQ, very high correlation with their emotional intelligence. Because to be a standout, to be a leader, you need to be able to handle yourself and handle relationships well. That's not IQ, that's emotional intelligence. If you're seeking to improve your emotional intelligence, do you need to relearn, in a sense, how to express yourself, how to engage with other people? Does that have to change? You know, it's really about habit change. Let's say the common cold of emotional intelligence in the business world and professional world is uh, poor listening, interrupting people, taking over a conversation too soon. If you want to change that, that's a habit you've practiced thousands of times. You have to do what? You have to become, first of all, mindful that this is a moment I can change. Second, you have to have a different repertoire, different new habit to replace it with and to practice that at every naturally occurring opportunity, like listing someone out then saying what you think. So it, it does take a little work. It takes a little persistence, but our data shows it's very possible. And when you do that kind of learning, it changes the brain. The circuitry for that behavioral sequence, it takes on the new habit and you do it after a while automatically. And do you have to be more forthright in expressing yourself more, I guess, in a sense, specific about what you're asking or what your needs are? In Australian culture and British culture, there's sometimes a a tendency to not oh. say what you really mean, to actually kind yeah. of hide it, and then to feel aggrieved afterwards that people haven't picked up on what you actually did mean. I think this gets back to the difference between being nice and being kind. You, you know, when you hold back, you're being nice, so as you don't upset the other person or, you know, rock the boat. But on the other hand, saying what needs to be said is really important. And on the other, other hand, there's a way to say it so that the other person isn't defensive, isn't insulted, can hear what you have to say. And I think that's the art of emotional intelligence, putting it so that the other person gets the information, but not in a way where they feel attacked. And looking to the future, I mean, what sort of role do you see emotional intelligence playing in our lives and in the various organisations and, and companies that, that will exist in, in coming years? I once met a very wise man in India who told me, you can plan for 100 years, but you don't know it'll happen the next moment, Anthony. So I hesitate to speculate, but I will. I think that emotional intelligence will only become more and more important for reasons you've named already, because of the trend toward digitalization, because of the data, which shows that this helps people do better, be more productive, be more engaged, learn better. I think all of that is going to make it more and more important. And I think that as crises mount, global warming, gap between rich and poor, more and more people competing for fewer and fewer resources and on and on, it's going to be essential that we learn how to get on with each other. And emotional intelligence is a map. What's surprised you most about the discussions around emotional intelligence and the way that that idea has developed in the almost 30 years since you wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence? When I wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, someone said to me, you know, you can't use the word emotion in a business context. 
today it's very, very different. I think that's the most surprising thing is the extent to which business has embraced the idea and understood, you know, the core of effective leadership is someone who's mostly intelligent. Well, Dr. Daniel Goldman, it's been terrific speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Anthony, my pleasure. Staying with emotional intelligence and the global technology services and consulting company Capgemini recently did a survey on the topic and how emotional intelligence is viewed by employees and employers. Program manager Amol Kadeka. We surveyed about 1,500 employees globally and across industries. And we looked at sort of somewhere around 10 or 11 countries wherein we reached out to about 1,500 of these uh, employees who are in non-supervisory roles. And in addition, we also reached out to employees in supervisory and executive roles who were about 750. And they came from all of the major sectors, for example, consumer products and retail, retail banking, insurance, automotive, as well as utilities. And in addition to these surveys, we also did some in-depth interviews with 15 industry experts and academics globally. So that's how we had structured the research. And the idea behind this research was to really understand the state of emotional intelligence in the global workforce across all these countries and sectors. And to really try and understand the role that emotional intelligence plays in a variety of organizational processes and metrics, for example, how important is emotional intelligence for employee retention, for organizational productivity, you know, things like that. So that was the aim and nature of the survey. But what about the findings? It's seen as a very valuable thing increasingly. And its importance, if I must say, has only increased in the last couple of years. We found that executives as well as employees believe that emotional intelligence will become a must-have skill for the workforce. And organizations are demanding that their workforce has these skills. So the demand for emotional intelligence is going to only multiply in the coming years. And why is that? What is it about emotional intelligence that people feel is valuable or is going to be valuable in the workplace in future? So I think there are multiple factors which contribute to this. First, in the context of more AI and automation, but generally in the context of more and more digital technology becoming increasingly better at routine tasks, more of these routine activities at workplace will get delegated to technology. And what it means is that more and more of human workers will be required to handle work which machines can't do. And by definition, that means the work which makes us essentially human, which is anything non-routine, which cannot be automated and something that requires complex decision making, anything requiring empathy with people. And by definition, these are tasks which are more value added. So in a way, it's good for the workforce that we are moving this workforce towards doing more of value-added tasks. So that's one major factor. Another factor is, as this transition is taking place, employees need to be responsive to that and they need to be adaptable. And a key ingredient of that is being emotionally intelligent. Because if you are emotional intelligence, you will understand this transition. You will be in the right place to adapt yourself better for this transition and to do more value-added stuff rather than doing the routine stuff. And thirdly, I think there is also a lot of pull from organizations, the demand from organizations to increasingly require emotional intelligence skills in their workforce. 
And that's why we found that the demand for emotional intelligence skills will multiply on an average by about six times over the next three to five years. And are those organizations looking towards emotional intelligence because they see it as a way of getting more out of their employees? As you say, some of the more repetitive tasks are likely to be taken by machines. Absolutely. And we see more and more of a demand for people to have skills which require relationship building, more of client-facing work, for example, customer service work, wherein people can effectively handle situations and can effectively service customers better. So one of the executives, interestingly, or to give you an example, executives whom we had interviewed for the research had said that in the context of client management particularly, there would be only about 10 to 15% of time which would require pure technical skills. However, the rest of it will be about emotional intelligence because a lot of what we are doing will be automated. So according to your research, more businesses are interested in developing the emotional intelligence of their workforce. But are there signs that businesses are actually investing enough in the training with regard to emotional intelligence? Well, actually, when we looked at their investments in training for emotional intelligence, for example, we did not find sufficient evidence. We actually found that only about 17% of organizations conduct emotional intelligence trainings for their non-supervisory employees, and only about 32% do so for the middle management employees. So this points to some kind of a lack of importance given to building EI skills or emotional intelligence skills in the workforce. And not only this, employees in non-supervisory roles are not assessed or appraised adequately for their emotional intelligence skills. And this, again, is uh, particularly a lack of concern for employees in non-supervised roles because they tend to be also junior in terms of age, and they are also more concerned about their skills being redundant in the near future. And we believe one of the major reasons why there is lack of sufficient investment is that there is a lack of a clear business case for investing in emotional intelligence trainings because it is hard to identify whether an investment is in something like this will yield returns or not. And therefore, we built a financial model to assess whether the potential upside from investing in emotional intelligence trainings, whether there will be this kind of an upside or not. And we clearly found that there is essentially an upside. We found that an investment of around $3 million on an average average organization can potentially result in an incremental gain of about $6.8 million over the next three years, which is more than twice the original investment. And this was a conservative scenario. So we believe that it makes absolute sense to invest in emotional intelligence. In fact, a study that was conducted by L'Oreal on certain emotional intelligence skills found that salespeople who had higher emotional intelligence skills outsold their peers who had lower levels of these skills on an annual basis by something like $90,000. And it resulted in a net revenue increase of more than $2.5 million for L'Oreal in that period of the study. We also identified there was less turnover and uh, so on and so forth. There was another study which found that workplaces which have higher emotional intelligence have higher organizational engagement. And a lot of engagement of workforce can be explained by emotional intelligence. So there are clear and concrete advantages to pursuing emotional intelligence and organizations can benefit from it. Amol Kadeka from the Capgemini Research Institute. And he was speaking to us there from Mumbai. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. 
Changing tack now and a bit of a reality check on the employment changes flowing from the current pandemic. One suggestion that's gained quite a bit of currency in recent times is that COVID-19 has not only seen workers reassess how they work, but also who they work for. In Australia and the US, it's being called the Great Resignation. But according to Associate Professor Martin Edwards from the University of Queensland Business School, it's a suggestion that's been, let's say, over-egged. I would say in Australia, the evidence isn't really there that we can see record levels of resignations. There's definitely been an increase, probably over the last six months. But if you look at the job mobility rates as a whole across Australia in the last year or the year leading up to February 2022, there just isn't evidence to suggest that we're seeing record levels of resignations. And interestingly, the, the, the narrative around the Great Resignation began in the US because the US was seeing, well, record levels, as they referred to it, of quit rates each month, particularly towards the end of last year and, and early this year. And that was being blamed on the pandemic and how people were responding to the various challenges that people have been faced with lockdown and companies retrenching and that sort of thing. But in the US... The records only go back to the year 2000. So record level quits are necessarily given the historical context that probably it deserves. And that's a problem you've pointed out with Australian figures as well to an extent, that if you look at job mobility rates longer term, they're actually quite a low level compared to the past. Yes, absolutely. So in the 1980s, one in five people were moving jobs quite a long period, actually, where people were moving jobs at a much higher rate than they are at the moment here in Australia, or in the least in the last year or so. So the most recent records go back to February 2022, and that's the year up to February 2022. And the mobility rates is still under 10%, but they were much higher um, in, in the 80s. So we actually have historical records that go back much further in Australia, interestingly, on job mobility than they do in the States. And it's quite clear that in the 80s, uh, that people were moving jobs at a much higher rate, at least, than they have been in, in, in Australia in the last year. So is there a lesson here in trying to draw too much, to look too far into the future using data that historically doesn't go back that far? I think so. I think we can see in the States... If the records only go back to 2000 and then, well, it's only 20 years. I think if you look at some other research that has been carried out in the States, there's evidence that at certain points during in the manufacturing sector many years ago, there were much higher quit rates. So, But it just isn't as accessible in terms of data that you can compare. So because the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics has data that goes back a lot further, we can put it in that historical context to show that, yes, whilst there's been an uptick, there was a lot more movement back in the 80s. And so what we've actually seen is, is relatively low levels of job mobility. And yes, there's an uptick, but that's comparing it against pre-COVID, which was still quite low levels of job mobility. What can I say? Don't believe everything you read or hear. Associate Professor Martin Edwards there from the University of Queensland Business School. Next time on Future Tense, another reality check of sorts, this time involving the concept of net zero. When a country puts forward a net zero target, 
Well, first of all, it needs to be very clear on what it's doing in the near term, because at the moment we're seeing governments put forward targets for the long term without any real clarity on how they're going to get there, no accountability mechanism to make sure that they do get there, which means that actually already they will have pushed warming beyond 1.5 degrees before we even get to the point of net zero. It's not a message that's going to be popular, but it's a message that needs to be heard. And it's an issue about which society needs to make a decision. We need to have an idea of what we're going to do to respond to the increase in vulnerability, the increase in damage and destruction and death that it's going to produce and make sure that we don't respond in ways that are going to make the situation much, much worse. Net zero under the spotlight. That's next time on Future Tense. Thanks to my co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.